First Samuel, quick tip for you, it's right before Second Samuel, okay? So, if you have not found it, that's okay, you have plenty of time. I'm going to read this whole text. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of this city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? Excuse my sniffles, guys. I'm sorry. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take, the cal- take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box 
at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beshemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, or from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, what we know not please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us for your son's sake. Amen. The year is 1936, and the intrepid archaeologist Indiana Jones sets out in search of the fabled lost Ark of the Covenant, racing a bitter rival and his Nazi cohorts to the prize. Over the course of a hair-raising adventure, Indy endures explosions, spiders, snakes, booby traps, and bad guys in his quest to save the holy relic. Now, some of us can recall standing in a blockbuster video on a Friday night reading that description on the back of what movie? 
false. It's Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you remember the premise of the film? The U.S. government calls upon Harrison Ford's character, Professor Indiana Jones, to stop Nazis from getting their hands on the long-lost Ark of the Covenant. Both Hitler and the Americans believe that if the German forces got their hands on the Ark, they would be unstoppable. One character memorably summarized the problem, saying, an army which carries the Ark before it is... Invincible. Evidently, none of the characters of this film had read 1 Samuel very closely. God is not a lucky rabbit's foot, a trophy, or a spectacle. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm glad you got it. I was about to cue you. Amen. We saw in chapter 4 last week that the Israelites treated the ark like a good luck charm. The result of their superstition was utter defeat. Pastor Jake reminded us, and you can find this sermon online, God is not a genie to be conjured. He is a king to be feared. As we open our text this morning, we see God's people are demoralized because the ark is, for the first time ever, in enemy hands. And the glory of God has departed from Israel. This morning, we will witness two more fundamental misunderstandings about the nature of God. In our text today, the Philistines treat the ark like a trophy to devastating effects. And when God's glory returns to Israel, some of the Israelite men treat the ark like a spectacle, also to disastrous ends. As we read this gripping story, let's remember together Pastor Jake's warning from last week. Sooner or later, your view of God is going to catch up with you. The ark signified God's special presence among his covenant people. And the ark of the, Lord, ark of the covenant is on the move in our text. I don't know if you were able to keep up with how many stops it made along the way. I'll show you in a few minutes. But the ark of God visits five towns, three in Philistia and two in Israel. First, the ark travels throughout the land of the Philistines, where we will see that God defeats all his enemies. Second, the ark returns to Israel, where we will see that God deserves all reverence. When God, whose presence attends the ark, comes to each town in our story, we learn a little more about God's sovereign power. In the first act of our story, we're going to look at it in two acts, the ark in Philistia and the ark in Israel. When in the first act of our story, God demonstrates his power over demon gods and even over the enemies of his people. So look with me in the first place at this truth that God defeats all his enemies. We'll be in Philistia for this first half, for this first act of the story starting in chapter 5, verse 1, going all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. But to understand the scene that we're about to talk about, we need a little bit of context. So you probably know uh, that the Philistines were Israel's sort of arch rival. They were their bitterest enemies at this moment in their history. But where do they live? Where, who are they? They're from a little land on the Mediterranean Sea, just to the west of Israel, called Philistia. 
Philistia was a network of five city-states with rulers in each. So the rulers would represent their city, and that was really the, the sum total of Philistia. The principal cities are Gaza, Ashdod, Eshkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and they had one principal god. His name is Dagon. I want you to note, before we go any further, that Dagon was not just some piece of metal fashioned, to an, fashioned into an image. We, we tend to think this way as 21st century Americans who love to discount the supernatural, but the reality is idols aren't just plastic or metal or wood. Idols are demon gods. I mean, they're real. They're just impotent before the God of all gods. Are you with me? So we see in the very first part of this text that Yahweh, Israel's God, our God, is victorious over his demon enemies. That's one part of our context. The second part that we need to talk about a bit is ancient warfare. Nations would assume, unlike us today, nations would assume that beyond the physical battle that's taking place on the battlefield, a cosmic battle was also taking place between one nation's God and their enemies' gods. Are you with me? So they believed that there was something cosmic going on during a war. Therefore, a defeated nation equals a defeated deity. So when the Philistines struck down Israel in chapter 4, the people of Philistia assumed that their god, Dagon, was victorious over Israel's god, Yahweh. And they are about to learn a hard lesson. There's more going on than what we see with our two eyes. To capture a rival nation's God meant total victory. And in Philistia's eyes, the Ark of the Covenant was simply the idol of the God of Israel. We know more than that, different than that. And it was very common to bring a rival nation's idol back to the pagan temple. They're, they're setting up the Ark of the Covenant as the idol of Israel, and they're displaying it in their pagan trophy case, as if to say, our God has defeated their God. And I love the first five verses of this text. If you read this with Hebrew eyes and ears, you would be cackling with laughter hearing this scene about Dagon falling down in front of Yahweh. What the Philistines are about to learn is that the ark of God is not a trophy. The Philistines display their trophy of war, Israel's idol in their temple, but Yahweh is no idol. He's the king of kings. The God above all gods. Their intention was to show that Dagon had been victorious over Yahweh. But when they got there the next morning, they find their God, their idol, lying face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. What does that posture indicate? Submission. 
When your enemy lays face down in front of you, you have conquered him. And I I imagine we would probably mostly assume the same thing. If we were in the shoes of the Philistines, we would probably think, oh, something went bump in the night and knocked over our our idol. So we'll just put him back up on the shelf. This brought to mind the memory of um, when Carmen and I were engaged. We had about two weeks until our wedding. And she was living in Virginia. I was living in Mississippi at the time. And um, she came home for Christmas break. We were going to get married in January. And so when she came home and her roommates moved out, I moved into our new apartment. And so I was staying by myself in this new apartment, a um, 21-year-old, right? 21. And I thought, this is the life. And I had started a load of laundry before I went to bed. I was feeling quite domestic, as you might imagine. And in the middle of the night, I heard a clatter, and it woke me up thoroughly. And I, I debated with myself, should I go check it out? And so I run downstairs, and it took me, it was a townhouse, don't think we were living large by any means. Uh, it, it, it took me a few minutes to get to the root of the problem, and the root of the problem was there was a little shelf between the dryer and the washer, and I had left one of the drawers open, And when the dryer was doing its shaking thing, it knocked that shelf off and it scared me to death. Now, problem solved. So you might think, the Philistines probably thought, oh, something went bump in the night and knocked over our idol, no big deal. Uh, We will put our idol back on the shelf. And I just want to point out to you that even their impotent God, he even needs help to get back up where he was going. And then the next morning, we see Dagon has been utterly conquered. I mean, there's no doubt about it, right? Not only is he back in the floor, but this time his head is chopped off and his hands are lopped off and they're lying on the threshold of the temple. I mean, there's only one conclusion to draw here, right? Our God has been defeated. This picture is really important if you consider Old Testament ancient warfare. Your signs was a a sign of, it was a symbol of your power. And so think about it with me. A headless God who cannot think and a handless God who has no power lying face down in front of the God who has all the power. What a narrative we've just begun. This is a picture of the utter impotence of Philistia's God. And I'm here to remind you this morning that we have a God that we worship who his enemies thought that they had conquered him. Isn't that true? But we serve a resurrected king who reigns above heaven and earth. Somewhere in the Middle East, there is an empty tomb. And in heaven, there is an occupied throne because our God cannot be thwarted. Now, look with me at chapter 5, verse 6. We are going to see three really important themes throughout this narrative converge in this one verse. So any kids in this room, I want you to listen real carefully for something. Are you ready? The first one of our themes that we see in chapter 5, verse 6, is the hand of the Lord. So here's what I want you to do, kids. You're going to hear that a lot. 
So I want you to write down every time you hear me say the word hands or hand. And at the end of the sermon, I want to know. I don't have an answer yet, but I want to know how many times I said the word. Are you ready? Hand. Notice with me, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. This is one of the principal cities in Philistia. And I want you to notice three themes that sort of converge here in this verse. The first theme is the theme of heaviness or weight. If you listened to Pastor Jake's sermon last week, you'll know this was the theme that was already running throughout the whole book of 1 Samuel. The glory of God, the heaviness, weightiness of God. That is, in Hebrew, the kabod of God. We heard about this last week. Eli's great sin was that he put the kabod, the weight, the glory on his sons over and above Yahweh. And in the end, it was Eli's own kabod or fatness which killed him. And you notice at the end of chapter 4, where we left off last week, it was a pretty low note in the history of Israel. The glory or kabod has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. God's kabod is his weight, heaviness, glory, and the Israelites think that the kabod has been captured. But hear me, the kabod, the glory of God, is very active in Philistia throughout our story. I mean, God in our narrative today is kaboding the nation of Philistia. I'll take it one step further in my youthful immaturity. He's kicking their kibbutz. In chapter 5, verse 6, and in verse 11, we see that the hand of God is heavy, kabod. The second theme that we see converge in verse 6 is the theme of God's hand throughout the story. We've already seen that the impotent demon god Dagon has no hands and therefore is powerless. And the very next thing we see is that the hand of God rests heavy upon Dagon's people. What a contrast. Our God has all power, all authority. Yahweh lays a heavy hand on Dagon's people in chapters 5 and 6. And spoiler alert, it doesn't end in chapter 6. The third theme that we see converge in chapter 5, verse 6, is is an allusion to the Exodus event. Say, why do you say that, Andrew? Um, You'll see that it's a theme throughout this whole story. And the first clue is the hand of of God. If you looked at Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 8, the author, uh, Moses, he, he talks about the result of the Exodus event. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. Let me list for you really quickly several of the ways that we see an allusion to the Exodus event in this text. First of all, God brought Israel out with a mighty hand. God has been taken captive in an enemy land, just like his people were in Egypt. God sends plagues so his enemies will let him go. God exercises authority over the rival demon gods 
If you were to go back to last year, I think it was, and listen to Pastor Jake's sermon on the plagues, he actually did two or three sermons on the plagues, you would see that one of the themes in those plagues is God demonstrating his authority over the Egyptian gods. This is happening in our text too. God travels from enemy territory into the promised land, just like in the Exodus. And God's enemies return the ark with gold offerings and God relents, just like the Israelites walked out of Egypt with the gold of the Egyptians. Are you starting to put it together? You're good. You're quick. Guess who else put it together? The Philistines. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? It's interesting to me that Yahweh's reputation precedes him among his enemies. There are moments in the Bible, this being one of them, where it seems like God's enemies have a better grasp on history than God's people do. It seems like they have a greater respect for the God of Israel than even Israel does. What a thought. I just thought of another one. The Philistines consult diviners or wise men or magicians saying, how can we get rid of this threat? That happened in the Exodus as well. Are you seeing it? Here are the three themes. The theme of heaviness and weight, the kabod, the theme of God's hand throughout the story and the allusions to the Exodus event. Now, what happens in Philistia? What did we just read? Andrew, help me understand. Okay, I'll try. The ark of God travels through the land of the Philistines. You're up, Whitley. I'm going to give you a map because I'm so nerdy and I think this stuff is helpful. All right, look with me at the travels of the ark. It was at Shiloh until the Israelites lost their battle. Then it went to Ebenezer. And when the Philistines captured it, they brought it all the way through their land. Do you see that? Through three of their principal cities. Now, I am indebted to a commentator who brought this out, so I, I want to point this out to you. R.P. Gordon said this, the story reads like a parody of a victory tour in which the roles of victor and vanquished are reversed. The defeated God, Yahweh, marches triumphantly through enemy territory. I mean, isn't that awesome? The Philistines, they kind of get it, but they don't get it. They don't see that in the travels of the ark, God is demonstrating he has utterly defeated his enemies. And at the end of our text, the ark winds up only eight miles from Jerusalem. God defeats all his enemies. In each city that the ark went to, three of the principal cities, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, God shows his might. You can see this in chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. He did it in three primary ways. First, he caused tumors. The word in Hebrew is literally swellings. There is some question about what that might be. Is it actual tumors or is it like boils? Was it the bubonic plague? After all, they mentioned mice. We don't really know, but what they know is they were suffering. And those tumors broke out on the people. And that uh, God used that to cause a deathly panic. The text says a panic that leads to death. 
which I think is to say riots. Each of these cities, they are seeing their people afflicted by tumors all over their body, and so they panic and they start to fight each other. And in just seven months, we see that God has defeated Israel's enemies all by himself. We also note, starting in chapter 6, that the sovereign hand of God accomplishes the ark's deliverance. I'll quickly summarize what happens in this part of the text. The leaders of each of these cities called the priests and the magic men, remember the Exodus, for answers. So they make a plan to send the ark back to Israel, but don't send it away empty-handed. Send it with a sort of compensation. Do what you can to appease this God who is causing such panic and death and destruction in our cities. So they say, in the, make a box and put in the box five golden tumors. That had to have been ugly to look at. Five golden mice, which was the third way that plagues were ravaging the land. Send it back as an offering and maybe the God of Israel will relent and he'll just leave us alone. We just want him to leave us alone. Send back a gift, but... Oh, wait, first. Send back a gift and give glory, kabod, to Israel's God, in verse 5. But they still weren't entirely sold. The consultants said, why don't you do a little experiment? When you send back the ark here's what you should do. We're still not totally convinced that it's Yahweh. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe these mice brought some plague and it's just, it's just, it just is what it is. Maybe there's nothing behind it. So let's see. Let's do an experiment here. When you send the ark back with the tribute, take two cows who have never been trained to work. They've never had a yoke put on their neck. So put it, we'll put a yoke on their neck these two cows, and, and, and just to make sure that we, we're all on the same page here, um, take their calves and put them away. Now, you might be shocked to learn this, but I actually grew up on a farm. My skinny jeans uh, be darned. I did grow up on a farm. So I'll ask you this question. We'll, we'll see if you know the answer. If you take two cows who have never been under a yoke before, and you put a yoke on them, that first time, is it going to go great? Okay, now to compound the problem, you take away their babies. Is it going to go great? Are those cows going to go exactly where you want them to go? Where are they going to go? They're going to go right back to the barn, right? But did you notice what the cows did? They went straight down the path to Israel as if there was some invisible hand guiding them. Wasn't there? They went lowing as they went, which is to say they weren't real happy about it, but they didn't get a choice in the matter. Something bigger, something greater than them was guiding where they went. The hand of God is at work in accomplishing the ark's deliverance. There's no way they would walk straight, but the invisible hand of God guides them 
straight down the road. And in chapter 6, verse 12, the ark goes back to Israel. I want to pause there and ask a series of application questions for you and for me. We've seen what God did in the land of the Philistines, how he utterly defeated all of his, all of his enemies. The Philistines thought that they could treat the ark of God like a trophy, but God had other plans, and he initiated not only his defeat of their God, but his victory march throughout their land. And I just want to ask you to examine your view of God. Do you view God's presence as a trophy? I mean, is your faith really just superstition? We talked about that last week. You might be like Michael Scott in the room and say, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. I mean, is your faith in God's power or do you want to harness God's power for your purposes? Do you think you can control God? Pastor Jake's sermon last week made me think of a story from when I was in, I think I was in college, but it was a friend from high school, a really funny guy named Will, and he, he posted this thought on social media. He's a Braves fan. Um, normally I would say pray for him, but I mean, they won the World Series last year. So, um, so he said, oh man, the Braves lost today. I really should have done my devotions this morning. Now he was being silly. But don't we think that way? I mean, don't we think that we can buy God's favor? Don't we think we can manipulate the God of the universe? And I have news for you. You're not big enough for that. God is so much higher, so much greater, so much more powerful. He will not be your trophy. Amen. He will not compromise with anything less than being your God. So are you really just a Philistine? Do you have a right view of God's power? I mean, remember this text. He has power over life and death and cities and sicknesses and cattle and all of human history. God has power over it all. He thoroughly conquers his enemies. So I'm begging you, don't be one of them. Sooner or later, your view of God is going to catch up with you. So today, submit to him. I would also argue there's a little bit, there's a little glimmer of good news in this story where God afflicts the Philistines. <clears throat> the Philistines got a little glimpse of God's sovereign power. They got a little glimpse of God's sovereign power. Now, the lessons that they learned were hard, but God revealed something about himself to even his enemies. One commentator said it this way, if Yahweh stoops to reveal himself even to the enemies of Israel, to this non-covenant people, perhaps we may infer that he may not be totally adverse to someday bringing near those who are far off by the blood of the Messiah. That's really good news. Because I have, I have some, uh, some surprising news for you today. Most of you are not Jewish. 
Most of you are Gentiles. And Ephesians 2.13 gives us some really good news for Gentiles. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Are you an enemy of God? If so, lay down your arms, submit yourself to him, and be brought into God's people. That's a prayer he will answer every time. So that's the first act of our story. In the second act of our story, the ark returns to Israel. So we ask ourselves, will they finally treat God like he deserves? Will they learn from their past sins? As the ark returns to Israel, we learn in the second place that God deserves all reverence. The scene starts well. I'm in chapter 6, verse 13 through 18. The scene starts well. This first reception of the ark in the city called Beth Shemesh, it starts really good. You think, oh, finally, the wrath of God has subsided. Everything's going well. The ark is back in Israel. It's all gravy, baby, but not really. It starts well. Beth Shemesh is a Levite town, so they should know what to do. In his law, God appointed the Levites to take care of the ark. So they ought to know what to do. And and it starts great. They start by rejoicing. The ark of God has returned to Israel. Woohoo! God is victorious. Yes! They sacrifice. Now, did they follow all the Levitical laws of sacrifice? No, but under the circumstances, it seems appropriate what they did. It seems acceptable considering the circumstances. But the irreverence of the Levites eventually caught up with them because sooner or later, your view of God will catch up with you. You say, Andrew, what did they do wrong? And it's admittedly kind of hard to see. The first thing we see in verse 15 of chapter 6 is that they left the ark exposed on the rock in a field. The second thing we see is, and we have to look at the law to see this, they did not cover the furniture the holy furniture there. I'm referring to Numbers chapter 4. This is part of God's law. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. The holiness of God reaches far beyond your comprehension and mine. God is so holy that if proper care wasn't taken to cover the furniture in the tabernacle, Whoever looked at it would drop dead, and that's what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 6. The Levites left the ark exposed to nature, and they left the people exposed to a holy God. And what they learned was that the ark of God was not a spectacle. We don't know if they looked inside the ark or just gazed upon it, But in either case, their looking was irreverent. 
They made a spectacle of God's presence, and the result was 70 men dead on the spot. They made a spectacle of God's presence. So does the modern church. There are examples galore on the internet of foolish worship. Let me say it this way. Of foolish worship. Fire tunnels, glory clouds, gold dust falling from the ceiling, angel feathers falling from the ceiling, making a spectacle of the worship of the living God. What is this other than manufactured glory? You think, well, I go to a Baptist church. We don't do that stuff. And that's true and good. But I would ask you if your attitude toward the Lord or toward his worship was, is ever irreverent or flippant. I don't mean yelling at little boys because they run in the sanctuary after the service. I mean, you come in to worship and have no expectation of the presence of God. It's just a thing to check off your to-do list. I can go or not. It doesn't really matter. What is your attitude toward the worship of the living God? We have examples of people just showing no concern for God's glory at all. I remember probably a decade ago, there was a famous t-shirt that just said, God, Jesus is my homeboy. You know, remember that? No? There was a famous preacher who wore shirts that had Jesus' picture with like DJ headphones on. I'll admit I even had a shirt that had the image of Jesus on it, and it, it was him in the clouds and said, BRB, which is be right back. And while I thought it was funny at the time, I threw it away when I realized I was showing no concern for God's glory at all. Jesus is not your co-pilot. I don't care what your bumper sticker says. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he deserves your reverence. Do you come to worship expecting to meet with a holy God, or don't you? I pray that you do. There's something special, something supernatural when God's people gather together to sing praises to him and to hear his word proclaimed. And the Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh I knew I was going to get this wrong, Beth Shemeshites, they didn't recognize this and they died for it. The hand of God was heavy on the men of Beth Shemesh. The Israelites still didn't get it. They still didn't understand God's power. I mean, at the end of the movie, at least Indiana Jones had the sense enough not to look. Are you with? No one else saw the movie? They're tied to the post. He and his love interest, I can't remember her name. And he says, don't look when they open the ark. At least Indiana Jones had the sense not to look at it and he was spared. Now that's not Bible, okay? But I'm making a point. The Israelites still had no idea who their God was. The reader would expect God's wrath to cease the moment the ark arrived in Israel. But the problem isn't what nation the ark was in. The problem is how the people treated the God of the ark. God's wrath still burns against sin, even if you grew up in church. 
The men of this city, as a result, wanted nothing to do with the severe holiness of God. Because those who walk in darkness recoil at the light. I want to tip my hat to some men who helped me walk through this text this week. I, I discussed this text with Pastor Jake and Skipper Bennett and Jamie Kinman, and they were all incredibly helpful. And Jamie noted that when faced with the holiness of God, we might choose to send him away in fear too. Don't send God away for his holiness. Ask him to make you holy. The men then ask a crucial question. Look at, look at it with me in verse 20, chapter 6, verse 20. This crucial question here. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? I think it's a good question, considering the story. Who is able to stand then before a holy God? And you're in luck, because the Bible actually explicitly answers this question. Earlier, Mark read Psalm chapter 15. Who can stand before the Lord? Psalm 15 tells us that the sinless man can stand before the Lord. Look with me at Psalm chapter 24. Just turn a few books over. Psalm 24. The, <clears throat> the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Same question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Psalm 15 tells us that the sinless man can stand before God. And Psalm 24 tells us that the King of glory can stand before God. So let me give you some really good news. You can't stand before a holy God. You can't. Unless the righteous man stands for you. Unless the King of glory stands for you. See, we see that the hand of God is heavy on the Philistines in chapter 5. And we see that the hand of God was heavy on even some of the Israelites in chapter 6. But I have good news for you. The hand of God was also heavy on his son so that you could stand before a holy God. There was only one man who could stand before God on his own merit. And the Lord poured out his wrath on his own son as a propitiation for us. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 tells us this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, that he is the suffering servant. We know it's Christ. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore our wrath so that we could stand in the presence of a holy God. So if our only hope to stand before a holy God is to be made clean and made righteous by the blood of Christ, let me ask you, could you stand before God today? If you are washed by the blood of Christ, the answer is yes and hallelujah. If your answer is no, I urge you, don't be like the Philistines. Don't be like the men in Israel. Submit yourself to the God who made a way for you to be righteous before him. The blood of Christ covers our sin. It, it, it stays the hand of God against us because the hand of God was heavy on his own son. Back to our text. The ark is on the move one final time. The hand of God finally relented at Kiriath-Jerim. Why? Why did God finally stay his hand at Kiriath-Jerim? That was the question I was asking myself. I read this text a bunch of times. I thought to myself, what's different? What's different about, I mean, the men in Beth Shemesh, they rejoiced, they offered sacrifices, and still some of them were killed for their irreverence. So what's different at Kiriath-Jerim? I would argue this. The men of Kiriath-Jerim cared for the ark in accordance with God's word. Look with me at chapter 7. We're going to finish this. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. So first of all, they placed the ark inside under appropriate shelter in accordance with God's word. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. So not only did they place the ark in the right spot under a roof, they also consecrated a priest to take care of the ark. You say, Andrew, the text didn't say he was a priest. How do you know that? I'm making an inference based on names. Did you notice the two names in verses 1 and 2? Abinadab and Eleazar. Aaron named his sons, two of his sons, Nadab, Abinadab, and Eleazar. Seems to me quite likely that this was a priestly city. These were very common priestly names. And they consecrated a priest to take care of the ark. So here's the big principle I would give you. The men in Kiriath-Jerim, they treated the ark with reverence. They treated the God of Israel with reverence. God cares about how he is worshipped. He cares about your worship. So here's some application. Here's a, one simple application for you. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. If, according to Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then we can infer that the failure to fear the Lord is the beginning of foolishness. It might just cost you your life. God cares about how he is worshipped. God cares about obedience to his word. Listen, brothers, sisters, we have God's book. Read it. Let's order our lives around it. I think that's the difference between Beth Shemesh and Kiriath-Jerim. One city cared enough to obey the word of God and the other didn't. Fear the Lord. 
Fear the Lord. I wonder if you have grasped the lesson the Philistines learned the hard way. I wonder if you have received the message Israel so often struggled with. Have you come yet to the conclusion that God deserves all glory and all reverence? I urge you to heed the warnings that come from 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. God is not your good luck charm to manipulate. He's not your trophy to parade around in your own pride. God is not a spectacle for our entertainment. God will not be mocked. Sooner or later, your view of God is going to catch up with you. God is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God above all gods. He defeats all his enemies. He deserves all the reverence. Ours is the perfect Holy God who loved you so much that he made a way for you to be brought near to him through the blood of his sinless son. So believe him this morning. Trust him. Submit to him. Let's bow before this great God today. Would you pray with me? God, I am persuaded that the main problem with the American church today is that we have no idea who our God really is. We so often pay lip service to your glory and we ignore your word and yet you are patient with us. We've not been struck down. You're merciful to us. God, I thank you this morning that you have made a way for us to stand righteous before a holy God. We can be washed clean of our sin and our guilt by the blood of the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. So help us to trust. Help us to respond in faith. I pray, Lord, that you would show us who you really are. Help us to get a glimpse of your glory and your power and your goodness. Don't let us be irreverent toward you. Help us to worship you rightly. Help us to stand one day before you, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, by Christ who took your wrath on our behalf to present us righteous before you. Help us, Lord. Pray these things in your name. Amen.